Welcome back to the DC Yoga Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Parkinson. We're here at the Hyrick House in DuPont Circle with producer Panama. I want to start today with a big shout out to Kim Weeks, who took the show in the last couple of weeks and did a great job. My guest today is John Schumacher. He has practiced yoga for 50 years. He's the founder and director of Unity Woods Yoga Center, serving the DMV area since 1979. For 33 years, he studied in India with BKS Iyengar, who personally certified him as an advanced Iyengar yoga teacher. Only 14 teachers in the U.S. hold certificates at this level. John's clear, precise style and his engaging sense of humor have made him one of America's leading yoga teachers. In 2015, Yoga Journal awarded him its prestigious Good Karma Award for spending 40-plus years sharing his practice to help authenticate yoga in America today. John has written for a variety of publications, has appeared in numerous local and national media, and speaks about the practice and benefits of yoga across the country. He conducts workshops for students and teachers throughout the world. Welcome, John. Thank you. Um, so, been practicing yoga for a while now. A little while. Mm-hmm. Where to begin, I guess? Well, how about the beginning? beginning yeah tell us about the beginning okay so uh, I was 25 years old and uh, I had uh, an epiphany at that stage in my life I had decided that lots of things I had been brought up thinking were important weren't Uh, and so in that case what was and I was questioning a lot of things and uh, I had an epiphany that uh, one thing that was clearly important was health So, you know, I could have a Ferrari in the garage and a yacht out on the water and a big house, and if I felt miserable, I would feel miserable. So I decided to spend some time taking care of my health, which I had paid absolutely no attention to prior to that. Uh, And the only thing I knew to do at that time was calisthenics. Mm -hmm. So I started doing jumping jacks and sit-ups and push-ups and like that. And I was living in a group house, and um, one of the members of the group house noticed that I was doing that and... Uh, said, hey, you might be interested in this, and gave me a book. And the book was Complete Illustrated Book of Yoga uh, by Swami Vishnu Devananda. This is 1970. And so I looked at the book. It looked interesting. And it wasn't just postures. It was lifestyle, diet, meditation, um, you know, all sorts of aspects of yoga, not just asana. Uh, And since I was questioning everything, I was also interested in those kinds of choices and uh, decisions. And so I started, I, I uh, made a commitment to myself of spending an hour a day uh, on my health. It seemed like a reasonable amount of time, but not too much, and it was a legitimate commitment. So I took an hour a day of doing asana, which was, they had a, a practice schedule at the back of the book, mm-hmm. and I loved it. What, was the po- what were the poses? Like, what, were, oh, what, did, it, what did it have you do? Oh, uh, you know, I was doing uh, Paschimottanasana, forward bends, and Janushirshasana, forward bends, uh, and Shirshasana, head balance, uh, and um, Sarangasana, shoulder balance, back bends, Dhanurasana, bow pose, Urdhvadhanurasana, upward bow. Um, not a lot of poses, but uh, most of the basic asanas, uh, some twists, some, some standing, Mm-hmm. Uh, just a, a mix, a balance of yoga. Posture. And did it have you like start with a with a certain like like was it like a sequence to it or was there it was just a sequ- like do, no. do, do do these poses? Yeah, no, there was a sequence yeah. to it uh, that was in the back of the book, and so I didn't know anything. I just followed the sequence, and I did that actually for three years. And uh, I was in, I was a musician at the time. I'm you know you're not was a musician. You are a musician or you aren't. So <laughs> I'm a musician, but I was a working musician at that time. And uh, one of the members of the band said, you know, I know this guy in my apartment building who runs a yoga 
um, it wasn't really a center. It was the Yoga Institute of Washington at the time, and a fellow named Bulgenda Sinha had come over and started it. Uh, and it didn't have um, uh, studios or uh, uh, wasn't a center. What he did was he uh, arranged all the contracts with the various rec departments surrounding the city uh, and supplied teachers to them. And so he had got that going and then went, went back to India and left it in the hands of a couple of American guys who were sort of spaced out, hippy-trippy kind of guys, and they let it kind of fall apart. Uh, and then one of the guys said, oh, I, I need to get this back together again and started looking for teachers. And so this uh, fellow band member said, this guy's looking for teachers. Uh, and I told him you did yoga, and he said, were you interested? Um, I was a musician at the time, uh, and so being a musician is a little like being a yoga teacher. Either you're really successful and you make pretty good money, yeah. or you don't make any money at all. Was that like your full-time gig at that time? Were you just like trying to find gigs and do that? Yeah. Um, at that time, I actually had the only job I got after college uh, that I kept for two years was, was working at a small school in McLean, Virginia, uh, it was for EDLD kids um, and very small Scenarian-based school. I minored in psych in uh, college mm -hmm. at Maryland. Uh, and so I took that job for two years, and I was working that job at that time. Um, but I was also uh, not making much money, $400 a month uh, at that job. Uh, even in 1970, that was not a lot of money. That's right. Uh, and... Um, so I was working in a musician, as a musician and not being, making any money there. So, uh, when, and the band didn't play every week. Uh, we played when we played. And we played, you know, all the colleges and um, most of the clubs around town, Child Herald, Psychedelic, uh, all those kind of mm -hmm. places. Um, but we didn't play a lot. And so to bring in some money, I used to art model uh, at Maryland, at AU, at private studios. And I could do yoga while I was uh, modeling, mm -hmm. um, hold poses or do fast poses for gesture drawings, things like that. And so um, I was making $4 an hour doing that. And uh, the, my bandmate said, well, he'll pay you $8 an hour. So I was going to double my income on a per hour basis. Sounds pretty yoga. good, right? I did. Yeah, it sounded good to me at the time. Uh, but I said, you know, I've never had a yoga lesson. I just worked from the book. Uh, and this is, of course, horrifying to me now in retrospect, but um, she said, uh, I talked to him and he said, he'll come look at you do poses and if he likes what you do, then he'll teach you what you need to learn. So uh, I'd worked very consistently. I was young um, and uh, by after three years, I could put my feet behind my head and stand on my head and do kind of snazzy looking poses. So he came over and uh, watched me do uh, poses, and he said, oh, fine, no problem. I'll tell you what you need to do. I met with him twice over the course of that summer. That was my teacher training. <laughs> and he gave me, it was a 10-class course, and each class uh, I had to teach a different aspect of lifestyle, meditation, um, cleanliness. Cleanliness was bathing with chickpea flour, um, diet, uh, different different aspects. I had to give a little lecture each week on that aspect of yoga lifestyle, uh, and then teach the postures, most of which were held for about six seconds. Wow, uh, that's and, not a lot. No, it's not a lot. So we kept moving, uh, and um, after the summer, he said, "Good, you're good to go." And this was 1973. And who was this? Who was teaching you again? His fellow's name was Joe Brennan. Okay, Joe Brennan. Okay. And uh, uh, so I started my first teaching at uh, Riverdale Town Hall. Uh, and uh, for the rec department, 
through the auspices of Yoga Institute of Washington and walked into a class of 31 people. And I thought... 31? 31. Really? Yeah, yeah. Back in 1973? Back in 1973. Rec department, cheap. Cheap, cheap classes were cheap. Yeah. Uh, And there was just a little bit of buzz back then about yoga, not anything like what it is now. And people still thought, you know, strawberry or vanilla, what kind of yogurt do you want? Right. Uh, And... um, I, you know, I was like, whoa. Uh, but I knew that I could do stuff they couldn't do, so I just teach them what I could do. So did you just stand at the top of the class and then like do poses and say, do this and yeah. copy me? Right. Yeah. Right. Wow. And did you actually? And did it, was it was it just asana? Did you ever get into like the 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 dietary or? Well, the we talked. As I said, I had to give yeah. a little lecture at the beginning of okay. each class, a little talk, like ten minutes, uh, about whatever the topic was for that week. It was mm-hmm. very laid out. It was you know a syllabus to follow, and so that's what I did, and I. Uh, I did that for quite some time, uh, but a couple of years later, somebody gave me um, Light on Yoga. Yeah. At that time, there weren't very many yoga teachers, and so I would get together for occasional lunches. You know, in those days, the people who did yoga were mostly um, uh, crazies, hippies, and little old ladies. And I probably qualified under a couple of those <laughs> categories. Uh, but not the little old lady part, but um, uh, several little old ladies uh, would hold luncheons at their house for yoga teachers, which was about five or six of us at that Mm -hmm. time. And uh, we'd get together and share workshop information or what you read or what you learned somewhere. And so I came in one day, and they were pushing each other up against the wall in triangle pose. And I thought, why are you pushing each other into the wall? They said, oh, somebody went and took an Iyengar class. and, uh, And I said, what's that? Uh, and they said, mm-hmm. oh, you never heard of Bikesh Angar, Light on Yoga? I said, no. And somebody showed me his book, and uh, I looked at the book, and that was the old book where the pictures were all in the back and the text was all in the front. Mm-hmm. And I looked through the pictures, and I said, whoa, this is not a complete illustrative book of yoga. This is something else. So uh, I s- took the book, and since I had learned by studying from a book and yeah. working that way. It was not unfamiliar for me to do that with that book. And since I could do some snazzy poses, I thought, well, I'll start with course three. So I looked it up, and it was all in Sanskrit, so I would have to read the word and then go look up the pose in the front part of the That's book. Right, and, yeah. and I wanted to learn the Sanskrit, so I would um, say, say what uh, phonetically I thought the word was. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I'd go back and uh, do the pose. Uh, and so after a couple of days of course three, I said, uh, I'll go to course two. <laughs> and after a couple of days of course two, I said, I better start from the beginning. So right. I just started from week one uh, and started to work my way through the book. I never did make it to the end of course three. Did So back then, what was, like, why did people go to yoga classes? Was it for flexibility? Was it for, like, what was what were kind of the students there for? Well, I used to ask that at the beginning of classes. Classes were smaller, not all of them, obviously. I had that 31-person class. But I also taught a number of private classes, and then I taught at dance studios and uh, fitness clubs and whatever there was around. And since you know, most of those classes were seven, eight, nine, ten people, uh, I would ask at the beginning of a class, or a session of classes. That's where I learned to teach in sessions by working through the rec department because that's how they scheduled it. Uh, and um, I'd say, why are you here? Uh, and people would have all different flexibility. Um, I can't, don't sleep very well. Uh, I want to learn how to meditate. Uh, I want to uh, become more spiritual. Uh, all kinds of things. Yeah, like similar, came, similar to today, really. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, people yeah. come for all sorts for all of reasons. reasons. That's that's fascinating, um, and so you were also uh, a child of the uh, '60s. I was, and the um, M. yeah, M. <laughs> um, 
And did you see all different types of people in your classes? Like you said, little old ladies, there were hippies, there were, you know, all different types in the classes. Right. They tended to be toward the unusual side uh, just because of yoga at that time. And nobody, right. nobody really knew much about what it was. Uh, but yeah, all kinds of people. Still. Um, yeah. Well, yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. Um, and then you got into the Iyengar style of yoga. You were fascinated by the book. Right. Um, and you were teaching at the rec center. You were teaching at other places around D.C. Where, where could you go to D.C. for yoga You know, at that time besides the rec center? Besides the rec center? Yeah. Well, as I said, dance studios, a couple of dance studios uh, that I taught in. But what I did at the rec centers, uh, and wherever I taught actually, was I would say to people, if you would like to have a class in your home, if you can find five people to do a class, uh, then you'll get the class for free and you'll have it in your own home. And so I wound up doing a number of classes like that. Uh, I mean, this was my, I decided to commit myself to this as a full-time gig, and so I was, uh, I was living really cheap at the time, which is the only way I could do this. I lived in a school bus for five years, uh, which is a cheap way to live. Yeah. Uh, and so I figured out what I needed to um, stay alive, to pay, to, to pay my way, sustain myself, and set my prices that way. And I, if I figured out that if I could get five paying people for a class, it was worth my, worth my while. Yeah. Um, so that taught a lot of, in a lot of homes. It's like the wild west of yoga. It sounds yeah, yeah. Like, right? like, <laughs> oh yeah. Like, <laughs> you know, just, oh, just throwing out your shingle and you know, here I am. Right. And that's all you did. That was your full time, your full time gig from like right. what time? Like 1979. 79. Wow. Mm-hmm. That's when Unity Woods came into existence. I said, yeah. you know, I've been teaching these other classes for like six years. Well, actually I took off for about a year and a half and took the school bus and took it around the country. I wasn't As you do in the 70s, yes. Yeah, and, you know, I was born in Baltimore. I've always lived in Maryland. And so I thought, you know, right now I don't have any commitments, anything. You know, I, so the band broke up. I was teaching these classes, but no commitment beyond the next session. And I said, I might as well see if I want to live someplace else. Mm-hmm. You know, I've lived here all my life, so I traveled around for about 15 months. What's, uh, what were the, so kind of, can you, do you remember like the, the format of the first classes you taught? Like were you, were you just following like what the book gave you or were you sort of like starting to play around with your own sort of synthesis of what you thought like a, you know, the students might need that were coming to you? Mm-hmm. Well, uh, early on, uh, I was basing it on what I, those little uh, papers that I'd been given about, you know, what to yeah. teach for Yoga Institute of Washington. Uh, but uh, I sort of based it on what I was practicing out of light on yoga. Uh, I was based, except for when I was doing that scheduled program for uh, Yoga Institute of Washington, I always based my teaching on what I was practicing. Uh, and since I was practicing mostly from the back of light on yoga, my, my classes were very much like that, those mm-hmm. kinds of sequences. Yeah. So tell us about your, because I really want to get into this, um, meeting and then studying with and then training with Iyengar. Mm-hmm. When did this happen? How did this come about? Well, as... Did you just, just get on a plane and go to India? Like, I'm going to find this guy and train with him. Not like. quite, but, cl- <laughs> but close, not far. Uh, I worked out of uh, Light on Yoga for five years on my own. And by then I was, you know, I'd started teaching, so I thought, geez, you know, working from a book is great, but I should have some input, you know. I, I need to learn a little more if I'm going to be teaching this stuff. So I went to occasional workshops, um, classes. Uh, again, there weren't a lot of them at the time. Uh, and, you know, expanded my horizons a bit. Uh, but working primarily from that book, and there weren't really any Iyengar teachers around. There was a woman named Joanne, I can't remember her last name, 
uh, over in, I think, Linthicum, Lanham, Lanham area, something like that. And I did go to uh, a private lesson with her, um, but there weren't really Iyengar teachers in um, classes anywhere. Uh, and uh, so uh, a woman named Karen Steffen came through Washington, and a couple of students at that time who were um, from the, uh, had spent time in the Philadelphia area and uh, knew of her, and she was, had been a student of Mr. Angar's for some time, but mostly a, one of his teachers, a guy named Rishi. Uh, and uh, she came through and gave a two-hour class. Uh, and um, she has since become a, a, a close friend. Uh, we don't maintain close contact much anymore, but really close for a long time. Uh, but my first impression of her was not favorable. Uh, she, came, she had uh, been studying and traveling in Europe with Rishi, and she came wearing a beret and a scarf, uh, and she proceeded to shout at everybody and swat people occasionally, uh, and was generally obnoxious to my point of view. That sounds like the first Angar class I took, but we'll get to that later. Oh, okay. Yeah, and you know, I, I had a beard to my breastbone and hair past my shoulder blades, yeah. and this was about peace and love for me, and this didn't sound at all like peace and love. Um, but I realized, with the instructions that she was giving, that I knew absolutely nothing about what I was doing. I was just moving. Uh, and so I thought, God, I've got, to, I've got to learn more about this. I don't really know anything. And I heard that this fellow named Victor von Koten uh, was giving a two-week intensive in Cambridge, Mass. And that he was almost like a son to Iyengar. He was really, really close to Iyengar and one of the most senior teachers in the world. Uh, and I thought, okay, I'll go up because I was pretty footloose and fancy-free. So I went up there for two weeks uh, and studied with Victor von Koten. Now, I wasn't interested in studying with BKS Angar at the time because, the you know, BKS at that time was uh, beat, kick, and either shout or slap. That was what those initials meant. And <laughs> yoga, that yeah, that's what people said. And uh, uh, Yoga Journal ran him on the cover as the Lion of Pune, and he was so uh, notorious, really, for being fierce and uh, just that fierce. And so my peace and love self said, you know, well, the book's great. Uh, <laughs> so uh, after studying with Victor von Koten for two weeks, I fell in love with Victor. He's still a very dear friend. Uh, and um, Victor was a brilliant teacher, brilliant practitioner, fabulous sense of humor, had this dry Dutch humor. He was Dutch. Uh, uh, and compassionate beyond belief. Anybody had a problem, he spent time with them. He adjusted every single person in every pose, and every not every pose, every class, but a lot of the poses. There's 50 people in this workshop. Uh, and so I thought, you know, here's this fabulous guy uh, who's like a son to Angar. There's got to be more to be cast Angar than beat, kick, and slap for this guy to want to hang out with him. So that was toward the end of the time when you could just write a letter to be cast Angar. Uh, and he would write back to you. So I wrote him a letter and said, I did this workshop with Victor von Koten, and I've done this for these years, and, um, and I've worked with your book for five years, and I would like to come take a class with you or to take study with you. And he wrote, there's intensive in January. That's the, he used to teach in intensives, three-week intensives. Mm -hmm. And normally you would be part of a group that went over. I was unaware of this at the time. Uh, but I just wrote, uh, and he said, you can come in January for the January intensive. It's $250, and you make your own arrangements. That was it. So that's what I did. Wow. That's fantastic. So you went over to India, 
and tell us tell us what happened when you got there. <laughs> well, uh, I thought I'd spend a couple of days in Bombay. It was then. Yeah, where where was where was BKS's place? Where did you have to Pune, go? Pune. Pune. It was, all, it, yeah. it, it was always in Pune. He'd okay. been there for decades, mm-hmm. uh, and he had built the institute. I think in '75 was when it uh, was finished. This was 1981 at this point when mm-hmm. I went. January of '81. Uh, and I was going to spend a couple of days in uh, Bombay, sort of looking around. I got there, I was totally jet-lagged and wiped out. And India was, uh, I got off the plane and I knew I, was in, I wasn't in Kansas anymore <laughs> uh, or Maryland either. Uh, and the, the thing that struck me that first and the most, well, you always land at night, seems like, in the three in the morning or something like that, was the smell. It was just uh, wood smoke, um, uh, dung, and um, oh, some other acrid smell that was just uh, amazing. Oh, uh, diesel fuel. Uh, that combination, and it was n- nothing I'd ever smelled before. And, uh, and then I went into the city and uh, had no place to stay. I hadn't made arrangements because I didn't know any place to go. So I went, ran into this guy um, who, or actually, uh, you had to get a car to go in the city, and the driver, of course, knew somebody who mm-hmm. knew somebody who had a hotel room. So I went in the hotel room, but I was. India, you know, I, I slept on top of the covers. I uh, was afraid to get in bed. God only knows what was in there. Uh, I walked out in the sunshine the next day, and it was like, where am I? And, you know, I was uh, decided not to stay in Bombay, but to go to Pune a couple of days early. Mm-hmm. Yeah, my, uh, my dad went to India in the 80s, and that was when he came back. I still remember him clearly telling me that uh, the first thing you notice when you literally the doors open on the plane is the smell, right. and you're like, Yes, India. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. Uh, and so then I went to Pune and spent a couple of days there before the intensive started. And I'm, the first class, uh, I had learned from these books mostly. And so I, if you look in the books, they're all in bathing suits. So I had this purple Speedo that I wore, and I had all my hair all over the place. And uh, I didn't have a tiger skin or a deer skin, as is recommended, to practice on. Yeah, so I for had a mat. A, yeah. Right. There were no sticky mats back then. Yeah. Um, and so I had a sheepskin I'd bought from Pier 1. Uh, and so I'm starting up the street with my uh, sheepskin. Uh, I wasn't walking around in my Speedo, but um, I, uh, uh, but I, was, I had it on underneath. I was mm-hmm. ready. Uh, and so I ran into probably the only person I knew there at the time, a woman named Marion Garfinkel, who ran the classes up in Philadelphia, um, had, a, had a, a center there. And uh, uh, so I, I'd been studying some up there and, uh, uh, and uh, done workshops there. And she, she said, oh, no, take your sheepskin back. Really? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Don't take We do not allow sheepskins. No, no. This was totally the wrong. I'd, who knew? But, uh, so I took my sheepskin back to my room, went to my class, and there were about 35 people there. And so we're sort of milling about, and uh, I'm... I'm sort of to myself because I didn't really know anybody. And all of a sudden, uh, I'm not facing the door. My back's to the door. But all of a sudden, this jolt came through the room. And I didn't have to turn around to see that BKS Angar had come into the room. I mean, you could feel his presence. It was really palpable. Wow. Uh, and um, when I turned around to see him, I was surprised. He was a short little guy. I mean, in the book and in, if you look at any films, mm-hmm. he has this presence and he seems huge. But um, his presence was huge. Uh, but... Um, he wasn't very tall. Uh, so he said, come on, all of you. That's how I used to start the classes. And um, there was no sitting in the beginning like there is now. Uh, um, you just 
stood up. He, he, and so he said, Tarasana, we stood uh, on these, there are lines on the floor, and you stood on a line. And then he proceeded to move everybody to where he wanted them to be, and that's where you were for the next three weeks. And so uh, I had my spot, uh, and we did the class. And, I mean, it was hard to understand him. His accent was, I wasn't familiar with it at all. And the, this, it wasn't like the book. <clears throat> I mean, the, there's so much more information, so much faster. I was just trying to keep up. But I was um, mobile. Uh, I was physically adept. And um, I was interested, so I paid attention. Uh, and so I've survived the class, met people. That's where I met a lot of the uh, more well-known Iyengar teachers in that first intensive. Mm -hmm. And so I, it was three weeks, so for about a week and a half, he didn't pay much attention to me. Um, I followed along. And then a week and a half in, uh, we're doing Uttidastapanangustasana. Uh, we're doing it on the wall, with standing on one leg and one foot's up on the wall, and we're holding ropes to lift up. And so I'm standing there, and he comes over and says, look at this fellow. He thinks he's doing so great. I'm stretching my legs. I'm lifting my chest. Do you see this? Do you see that? Do you see this? He knows nothing. And he gave me a swat on the shoulder. Uh, and from then on, um, I had done this workshop in Philadelphia with a guy named uh, Martin Jackson, who was a senior Iyengar teacher from Australia. Uh, and at one point in that workshop, before going to uh, India, and I was about a, uh, half a year from going, he said, if you do that in class, Iyengar will be on you like a terrier on a rat. So and from that point on, he was on me like a terrier on a rat. And he just didn't leave me alone. And we would be sitting in the afternoons for pranayama. We would do two to four hours of asana in the morning and an hour, hour and a half of pranayama in the afternoon. And we were sitting. There was no lying down. It was seated pranayama right from the get-go. And I'd be sitting, and he, he would say, relax. And I thought I was relaxing. He'd kick me in the back, and he'd say, relax. You know, it's hard to relax when you're getting kicked in the back. No shit. Yeah, really. <laughs> uh, and so... Um, it went on like that for a week and a half, and I, um, I would wake up in the morning sort of like a prisoner in jail, and I would scratch a day off on the wall and go, only, only 10 more days to go, only say eight more days to go. Do you think he was just trying to get like an ego reaction out of you and get you to like recognize that your ego was doing this? I think he did that with everybody. He did with everybody, The, the yeah. general three-week program, which I learned or surmised from my observation over the years that followed, was the first week was to sort of see what was happening with the people in the class. The second week was to take everybody apart. And the third week was to put everybody back together again to the extent that they were capable. Um, and so uh, I was scratching off days in the morning, but I would leave class feeling so great. I mean, there, just the energy of the class and the physicality of the class and the focus of the class, and it was just trans, transformative experience. Uh, and so by the end of the day, after the classes, I would sit at my hotel, the Shreyas Hotel, had a little roof that you could sit up on. And so I would sit up on the roof in the evening, like 6 o'clock, 6.30, and um, it's sunset. There's pollution, so the sunsets are beautiful, they're well lit, and there's a, it's 70 degrees, and the palm trees are swaying, and parrots are flying over, squawking, and I could stay in India the rest of my life. And I would wake up the mm. next morning counting the days to get out. And so by the end of the third week, I was a basket I'm case. surprised he didn't follow you up onto the roof and swat you in the head. <laughs> he had other, <laughs> other things to attend to. Uh, so by the end of the third week, I was, I was a basket case. I was up and down and up and down so much. Uh, I had planned at the end of the intensive to go spend uh, a week and go and smoke hash on the beach and hang out, and I canceled all of that. 
I booked the first flight out when it was over. I said, I'm going home. I can put on my resume. I've studied with BKS Iyengar. Um, And I don't need to go back and do that again. Uh, The thing was that six months later, I practiced what I'd learned because it was such a transformative practice. And I started to teach what I'd learned and what I was practicing, which was very different from Shivananda Yoga. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, we didn't. St- some of my students said, we're not lying down between poses and resting. What's going on? I lost about half of my students. When I so that's back. what you were teaching when you first opened your studio. You were teaching Shivananda. Basically, well, Vish- Swami Vishnu taught yeah, essentially yeah. Shivananda Yoga. Okay. Uh, so um, that, you know, when, when I wasn't teaching, you know, Yoga Institute of Washington stuff. Uh, so... Um, uh, I lost half my students, but I had to teach what I was practicing. I mean, that's if you're not doing that, you might as well go read up a book. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, but I started to gain more students, and pretty soon I had bigger classes than I had had. Uh, but I, you know, I had no intention of going back. But six months later, uh, you know, there's this thing called automatic writing, where you just put your hand down and some cosmic spirit moves your hand <laughs> and you write stuff. Well, that had never happened to me, but I f- it was almost like that, that I found myself writing a letter to B.K.S. Iyengar saying, I would like to come back and study again. And I wanted to do that because I realized I had been exposed to so much uh, that was beyond me uh, in that first intensive. Uh, and I practiced what I had learned, and um, I wanted to deepen that. I wanted to understand it better, because uh, I realized I'd missed a lot, mm-hmm. a lot, most of it probably. Also, I wanted to know what happened to me. I'm supposed to be this yogi, you know, pretty equanimous, even, steady, the wind doesn't blow your candle out, that kind of stuff. And I was a nut job by the end of the three weeks, so I was curious as to why I felt the way I did. Mm-hmm. I wanted to go examine that again. So I went back, and it was a year and a half by that time, August of 82, and went back to classes. And um, he treated me entirely differently the second time. And in pondering why that might be, uh, I realized, now having taught for so many years, that I was kind of the ideal student in that uh, I was very capable. I'd practiced at that point for 12 years. My body could do what I wanted it to do for the most part. Um, Mm -hmm. I'm reasonably intelligent. So uh, I could follow him along. I was a little more familiar with the accent. and uh, I was still new enough to this method that I didn't have preconceptions and ideas. So I was a diamond in the rough, in a way. Yeah. I was the perfect student in a lot of ways. And he saw that. And he saw also that I'd spent a year and a half working on what he showed me. Well, you, as a teacher, you can't have anything better than a student who takes what you offer them, works with it, uh, brings it back for refinement. I mean, that's why I teach yeah. for those people. Uh, and so... Um, he just treated me differently from then on, and we had a we had a really close and great relationship from then on, and it deepened over the years. I mean, he spent uh, a couple of times he came to Washington and stayed at my house, so I knew him outside of the classroom. He was quite different outside the classroom, yeah. um, but you know, thirty years you develop a relationship. Yeah, there's, it was funny on the Joe Miller podcast. Joe talks about how he came, anger came, and. Joe Miller said something to him, you know, like, oh, you know, you've changed my life, or I forget the direct quote that he said, and, you know, I think Ingar kind of gave him, like, a little pat on the head, and was sort of like, isn't that cute, and like, move on to the next person. You know? Yeah, well, and a lot of people, of course, said that of to course, him, because course, he changed right. a lot of people's lives. <laughs> of course. Uh, but he didn't take that for granted, that's why no. he was there also. Um, I have so many questions. The, <laughs> the, when you were learning 
the asanas. Um, did does and I don't. I'm totally ignorant of like sort of. I mean, I know a little bit about Iyengar yoga, not not a whole lot though. Was there sort of a sequence to what he taught? Was there um, was it like you start with with these poses and then you progress to these poses? Was it like you know? Was it like Tabi Joyce's Ashtanga system, or was it totally was it totally different? Something different? Um, it wasn't like uh, the Ashtanga yoga system, the Patabi Joyce system. I did spend a week with the Patabi Joyce at Feathered Pipe Ranch a bunch of years back. Um, so I'm a little familiar with that, you know, a week. But I'm a little familiar with that. Some of my best friends were Ashtangis, are mm-hmm. Ashtangis. Yes. Uh, and so... And they all have shredded hamstrings. <laughs> shoulders. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, so um, um, the the sequence wasn't, you know, se- primary series, second series, third series. It wasn't uh, rigid like that. It's right. pre- prescribed like that. Um, but you start with standing poses. They're the foundation. Uh, and then from standing poses... Uh, it's inversions and forward bends, uh, and then from there it's back bends. Very so cool. As a, as a generalization, a gross generalization, mm-hmm. uh, that's how it went. And that was sort. And, what, and it was a different class, kind of each day, or was it different like class a, each day? Different, class, different yeah. sequence each day. Yeah. So when I teach here, I my classes are different each. I, you, uh, presumably, you come once a week and study, and uh, so those classes are different, except for the beginner's classes. They tend to be somewhat the same each week, but uh, added a little bit as you go on, and added poses and added refinement to what you're doing. Um, and then the pranayama, um, what were you guys doing? Like, we, what? we were doing everything. We were doing kumbhakas and um, digital, you know, Nadi the digital pranayama, which is very different from Shivananda. Uh, alternate nostril breathing, even though they seem to be the same. I mean, I had to start my pranayama practice from scratch uh, once I started studying with Iyengar. Yeah, though. was that just mind-blowing when you first started, when you saw yeah. that? You were like, what is this? Yeah, like, yeah, I had no idea. I mean, uh, I had no idea how to sit. I have old pictures of me sitting and for pranayama prior to that, and it was like, oh my God, how, how could you even breathe sitting that way? <laughs> uh, so, um, yeah, e- everything changed and um, like that. Yeah. Um, and so the second time you went down, tell us a little bit more about that. Like the second time you went down and the, the, how, how it continues to develop. What, what, was, what was he like? What was Iyengar like? He was fierce. Um, he had a fabulous sense of humor, uh, a great sense of humor, and sharp. He was so sharp he didn't miss a thing. Uh, I mean, you felt like you know, no matter what you were doing, he could see you. Even mm-hmm. if his back was to you, you had that feeling, and he, he sort of um, gave evidence of that often with his back to somebody, he'd say, hey, you, do this. Mm-hmm. And they, were, they needed to do that. Uh, um, I don't know what else to say about it. I don't it. know. Just, like, wait, how, well, I have so many questions. The first, I, you know, off the top of my head, like how did, you know, because this is a physical practice, how did he weave in sort of the concepts of yoga as we know them, right? You know, because in his book he talks a lot about yoga concepts and then there's all these pictures of postures and you're kind of like, all right, I see, I see like lots of yoga philosophy and I see lots of postures. I'm not sure how they go together. Right, and that was one of the, re- one of the things that really attracted me to Iyengar yoga. Having been not only in Shivananda but other yoga traditions I studied with over the years, there was a lot of talk about the spiritual and philosophical aspects of yoga, but I didn't really, f- it's you know, sort of like going to a sermon on Sunday and hearing the words but not really getting moved, but then maybe going to... A gospel church and going, whoa! This is I feel this man. This is what this is really about. Yeah. Well, that's what happened for me in Iyengar Yoga, and I'm sure it doesn't always work that way for other people, but it certainly worked that for, way for me. And one of the things he was always adamant about 
defensive about, honestly, until the day he died. I went to his 95th birthday celebration a year, less than a year before he died. Uh, and he was still addressing this, that it's not just a physical practice. Obviously, it's physical. You're in your body. Um, but the body is uh, a vehicle for us. Uh, and it's a vehicle for us to awaken to what is really our true nature. Uh, we are souls. We are divine beings. And the idea uh, of yoga, from my point of view and uh, from his point of view, as I understood it, is to clear away whatever's in the way of our uh, seeing the truth of that. Uh, and so his weaving of philosophy into the teaching was not didactic, sit in the front and give out um, sutras. Uh, it was, we're doing this. Do you see how this relates to that? Yeah. And it's immediate and it's palpable. Uh, and uh, it's alive in that moment. And so one of the things we do in Iyengar Yoga in our process of developing teachers is as they become more experienced and higher certified teachers is have them learn how to incorporate philosophy in an organic way into their teaching. Uh, and it's a skill and it's not easy to do. Um, but it's so valuable because I do it in the very first class when I teach my beginners. Um, we stand in Tadasana, uh, second pose, because we sit cross legs in the beginning. Uh, and then we stand in Tadasana, in mountain pose. And we're standing and I want them to work their legs. So I'm talking about what to do with their feet, what to do with their knees and their thighs. And I have them do that. And then I say, now relax your legs. And I, they relax. And I say, do you feel how your whole body dropped, how your spine dropped? Which it does if you aren't using your legs. So a lot of people don't realize, I say to them, that your legs are really what you do with your legs is connected to what happens everywhere else in your spine, in your body. And it's really what yoga is about. It's about everything being connected to everything else. It's to what the word means. And I don't go on and on about it. I just say that. But that's maybe the first philosophy lesson for those who um, might not be familiar with it. So to bring it in in very simple but accessible ways like that. Yeah, I love that. I love that. I try to do that. I try to do that in my own class as much as possible. I think it's a very um, effective way to teach um, the yoga, yoga, you know, not yeah. just the asana, right? you know, which is, you know, I, you, maybe you've seen it, maybe you haven't seen it, but over the years seems to be more and more asana focused and less and less yoga focused. And as, as yoga becomes more of a brand and less of a spiritual practice, we start to see that more and more and more. It's true. I mean, people come, as you said, for all sorts of reasons, but most people come for some sort of physical fitness reason. Yeah. Uh, and so, the, you know, it's, uh, we're in America. We're in a serious capitalist society, and uh, money's a cornerstone for a lot of what goes on here. And uh, one of the things that uh, Mr. Angar used to uh, caution us about and uh, rail against was the commercialization of yoga, which has obviously happened. Uh, and Why? Why did he say, or what did he say? Was it was it corrupting influence? Sure. He, yeah. Exactly, exactly. People, <coughs> people come for not for yoga, and so they don't even really know what yoga is a lot of times. Now, what yoga is is a great big giant question, and you know, lots of people have lots to say about that. Uh, but one thing that yoga definitely is is more than uh, jumping around and moving your body. It's a broader subject than that. What did what did BKS have to say about it? What is yoga? Oh golly. Well, you know, his, his whole teaching system is founded in the sutras, in Patanjali's right. Yoga Sutras. And it's all right there. So it's that Raja Yoga, that internal mm -hmm. development. That's yeah. right. That's right. And so it's there in the first three sutras. Um, now, he, now we have yoga, okay? 
Hatha Yoga and Shasanam. Uh, Yoga's Chitta Vritti Nirodha, people know that mm-hmm. one. It's the cessation of the fluctuations of the mind. And then the third one, Tadad Rashtu Swarupe Vastanam. Then the seer is established in his own fundamental and essential nature. Then you are, you begin to see who you really are, which yeah. is, you know, divine being. Yeah, I always tell students that if you can if you can understand the first three, you just don't need to read the rest of the book. Yeah, <laughs> but it, it's helpful. Of course, of course, yes. If you if you don't know what's going on, it is helpful. Yes, because right. right. um, he tells you how to do that in the rest of the book. That's right. That's right. Um, now, in a in a typical like in your typical Iyengar class, will you is there a section for pranayama as well? Do you do that in every class? No, no it's a separate it's a separate study. Except for occasionally, I will do usually each once each session, I will do uh, a restorative class of not um, not so active poses, supported poses for the most part, uh, and incorporate um, some breath work in that just preliminary. But we teach separate pranayama class. It's a separate class, uh, a weekly class. Uh, an hour a week. And I did that for 20 years or more. I just recently stopped doing that as a way of cutting back my time some. And I had, uh, at that point, apprentices, students, teachers at Unity Woods who had been studying pranayama with me for years and years that I felt comfortable with as they're being really good pranayama teachers. So we still do that. And one of the problems with pranayama is that um, because people don't practice, you constantly teach them just the beginning. And so they, that's all the experience they have. Right. Whereas if you have a weekly class, then you get to have that beginning experience, but then you get to build on that because those people are practicing. Yeah. Um, did Anger ever give you a clue as to where he got all the poses? No. Well, he started, of course, with Krishnamacharya, so he, right. learned, he learned those, those series. Uh, um, and, uh, th- you know, I know about... Uh, is Singleton, Mark Singleton's book and mm-hmm. all that. He yeah. never made any mention of any of that stuff. I think what he did was take uh, the asanas that he'd learned from Krishnamacharya. He was sent to Pune to teach and uh, without a whole lot of training of familiar circumstance uh, and began to develop those poses because he was working uh, with uh, soldiers. There was a lot of military stuff in Pune uh, and university students and then people with illnesses his reputation really built a lot because he was uh, so capable therapeutically and he couldn't do all these primary series stuff with or, or any Ashtangas kind mm-hmm. of stuff with um, with those folks. So he began to develop methods that would make yoga accessible to everyone. Yeah. Uh, so I think it's mostly his own development that did that. Now you might ask where Krishnamacharya got the poses that he taught Iyengar and you yeah. know the, the whole thing about ants eating the paper the leaves yeah, is kind of yeah, out yeah. the window now. Well, so let's, let's flesh that out just for a moment here. So have you, you've, you've read the Singleton book. It, I have. Yeah, yeah. Um, so for those of you who don't know, there's a book called Yoga Body by a guy named Mark Singleton. It's a fascinating look at the development of the modern asana practice, or at least I think it's fascinating. But I, I think have, it's fascinating. I don't have anything to compare it to. So, you know, um, I'm an amateur historian at best, and so I, I definitely don't know an awful lot about the, the history of or at least colonialist movements in India and how yoga got there, and he lays it out very, very, um, in, in a way that's really, really digestible and um, in a fascinating way. And um, part of what he, part of the book's assertion is that um, Krishnamacharya, in uh, at the, <coughs> excuse me, when he was um, when he was at the palace doing the the classes for the students, um, there were other fitness 
instructors who were there um, and they kind of all borrowed from each other and kind of all developed like this this calisthenics that had come from the YMCA and had come from Northern Europe through via the British to India. Um, and they basically decided to turn um, colonialism on its head and we, they put the, took some of the poses from the Hatha yoga tradition in addition to these calisthenics and they went, boom, this is, the, this is yoga here now in Mysore. Um, and out of that, you know, Krishnamacharya basically, you know, with, along with a couple of other instructors, invented these poses, for lack of a better, mm -hmm. better way to put it, with the exception of some that you see, like in the Hatha Yoga Pratipika and some other, some right. other poses. Um, so that's kind of what we're, that's what we're, we're jamming about. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, and so... Um, and then, of course, probably Joyce claims that, no, this isn't true, that he, uh, that he found a scroll, and him and Krishnamacharya had seen a scroll in a library uh, where the sun salutations were mentioned, you know, in the, the Rig Veda, you know, 2,000 years ago, and this is the way to practice. But, you know, that uh, it had, after they had seen it, that it had gotten wet and you know, ants, eaten by, eaten ants, by right? ants, and so the only copy has been destroyed, and so... That's yes. been debunked. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, that, and it that does, sound and you heard was Ashtangis everywhere, just yelling and pulling and clawing at their eyes. Yes. Well, some of them were aware that it was debunked, <laughs> yeah. also directly from the source. Uh, but uh, you know, and people, you're right. People get sort of excited about that, and maybe yoga isn't this ancient tradition and all the rest of it. And on a certain level, it doesn't really matter. Um, yoga has been changed time and time again over the millennia. Uh, it's an adaptable. It's not rigidic, rigid or dogmatic. Uh, it's one of the one of the amazing aspects of it is that lack of dogmatism in the in the heart of it. Uh, and so, what's what's being taught at least in Iyengar yoga these days? Whether the tradition, well, the tradition clearly goes back at least to uh, Patanjali because mm -hmm. it's founded in that philosophically. And in terms of the asanas, whether it goes back to Krishnamacharya or the Rig Veda or wherever, it is where it is and it does what it does and it's marvelously effective. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I find that like, really, really cool that, that um, you know, there's, in a way, and this is a gro gross oversimplification, but in a way you see, you know, the... the the Ashtanga method that Batabi Joyce develops, and as it's the whole idea is that you, you know, get bendier and bendier and bendier and bendier, and um, and that uh, from what from what you've told me that Iyengar kind of took those poses and was like, no, you know, like let's make this so that everybody can do it. Mm -hmm. Well, that's you know, that's like, why he de developed props the way he did. Yeah. I mean, he didn't invent props; uh, they've been around for millennia, also. But he he took what was a very basic kind of use of props and just made a science out of it. And expanded it incredibly. And nobody had used props around here, I can tell you, because I started when there were no props and no sticky mm -hmm. mats. Nobody thought of anything like that um, until it really started to come from because Iyengar. Uh, and did you get the sense that Iyengar <clears throat> sort of saw himself like Krishnamacharya did in a sense that um, what he's doing is um, really more like a doctor than a fitness instructor? Where, it's where someone was coming to him with an ailment or a problem, um, and he would like he would um, say, "Oh, here's a pose that will help you with that," or "Here is a breathing technique that will help you with that," or do you know, do you think it was more of a restorative, regenerative uh, practice rather than a fitness practice? What it was was no matter who came to him, he taught them yoga, and he would observe the person uh, who had come to him and say, "This is." what's making it difficult for this person to understand and experience yoga. So here's what I need to do in order to make this accessible to them. 
Uh, and if they had some certain problems, it would be a therapeutic approach. Uh, for others, it was just um, a different approach to asana, an appropriate approach to asana and or pranayama. Uh, for him, meditation was um, an inherent part of doing asana and pranayama. It was a meditation in motion. Um, and so uh, he spent, he taught uh, Krishnamurti, uh, Krishnamurti in Sun in Switzerland for a number of years. And so uh, I've read a lot of Krishnamurti and heard him speak a couple of times. Uh, and so clearly they were influenced by each other. <clears throat> and the idea of, uh, or really I want to say the idea, the experience of bringing total attention and awareness to the asanas uh, and the pranayamas uh, makes it a, a meditative exercise. You know, the, the final three limbs, dharana, tiyan, and samadhi, sanyama, um, are part of that process of first uh, paying attention to the details of the pose uh, and then um, being able to be really focused without interruption on that pose and becoming absorbed where you're not doing the pose. The, this pose is um, it's just there. Uh, that's, that's his approach. Yeah. Um, so you came back from... India in the mid 80s or how often did you go over there to study with Angara? Usually yeah. every other year, every sometimes other year. every year, sometimes every third year, but and like did you have like so and you just went back and you studied with him personally or was it like it was still in a big group? I was part of a class. The groups got bigger as I went back. It was that first group it was about 35 people. Uh, by the end of my studying with him it was hundreds of people. Really? Uh, so yeah. Um uh, well, I, at the end, I wasn't going to um, intensives anymore. I would just go to events that he would have that would be hundreds of people. Mm -hmm. um, so I went like that. That's fantastic. When I first went to Pune, it was there were almost no cars. Uh, it was uh, rickshaws, which are little uh, three-wheelers with a little canopy on them, and bullock carts uh, and um, scooters and bicycles and people were in the streets, and you would see buff water buffalo herds walking in the streets and all kinds of animals and stuff. Um, if you if there was a television, it was in a shop window, and there were twenty people around the shop window looking at it. Nobody had televisions. Uh, if you made a phone call, you talked to an operator who said, "I'll call you back when I get your party," and it might be a minute, and it might be an hour, and it might be the day later. <laughs> um, of course, now it's totally modern. All those kinds right. of things are available, and it's a big city. It was always a couple of million people, but now it's a lot more, and it's very cosmopolitan, and the streets are packed and it's very different you don't did see you, water buffalo anymore <laughs> did you continue to go over the years kind of like as a regular like pilgrimage yep. almost back yeah yeah um all right let's end the episode there okay um and then uh we'll do we're going to be back uh, everybody with uh with a second part um in a couple of weeks for you but just for a couple of minutes for me and john so you've been listening to the dc yoga podcast i'm your host chris parkinson i've been here with john schumacher and producer panama and uh we'll talk to you in a couple of weeks take care <laughs>